so good to see you all this morning. I am thankful that you are here. Last week, we had an incredible afternoon together uh, celebrating our Super Bowl with our soup lunch and our uh, desserts, which were amazing. And uh, man, I was feeling like I was about to hit a sugar coma on Sunday night. But God is good. We had a wonderful time together. And I got to say, just uh, in terms of speaking of God is good, normally you hear people say God is good. They respond by saying all the time and then all the time. Thank you. God is truly good. It has been quite the week for many in our family here at Southside Baptist Church. Um, By God's grace, uh, Brooke Coleman, who was up and down all week, is home and resting and we're praying on the way to recovery. So it is good to see Larry and Lori back with us, and Miss Georgia and Miss Ruby. God is good all the time. I got to tell you, it's amazing to see the the man that was just down here praying, Ernie Kearns, who uh, I don't see Ernie in the room. They have already kicked him out. Good. We've learned our lesson about Ernie. No, uh, Ernie uh, was earlier this week. Ernie, uh, most people may not have known this. I don't know if you knew it or not, but he was actually in the emergency room uh, the first couple days of this week and uh, was very sick. We didn't know what was going to happen with Ernie, but by God's grace, Ernie's back with us today. And then Miss Judy Hartman who I see you back there, Miss Judy. Miss Judy was also very sick this week, not sure what the week was gonna look like, but by God's grace, she is back with us today. And so I'm thankful for that. And Miss Judy, I apologize to you for every harsh thing I said about you last Sunday, uh, because you and I were bidding over a cake and you clearly won. And so um, then you got sick and I take back everything I said. So anyway, uh, anyway, God is good all the time and all the time. God is good. Amen. If you have your Bibles, and I hope you do, we're continuing on with our study through our series called The Gospel. We are still in the Gospel of Mark, still in Mark chapter 10. And so I would invite you to go ahead and turn there with me now. Now we are moving on from a very tough and yet grace-filled text into another text today or question today that um, we need to make sure that as believers in Jesus Christ, we get right within ourselves. And so as you're turning to Mark 10, I want to ask you this question. Have you ever had a moment where you began to question your purpose in life? Maybe you've asked yourself this question before, why am I here? And so you begin to do some soul searching, and then ultimately the question of why am I here leads you to the question of, well, who exactly am I? Well, here's the reality. We ask these questions usually in the midst of finding our significance, finding our importance, or even finding out what our call or destiny in life, if you will. But the reality is, however we answer any one of these questions will often influence how we answer the other and will then therefore lead us in the direction we move within our lives. Yet oftentimes, when we do this sort of soul-searching we tend to miss the most important question, and it's a question that we are going to explore together today, and that question is this, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Now, our text today will address that question of who or what should have first place in our lives. It's almost like we read uh, Paul's words to 
uh, the church of Colossus in Colossians chapter 1, verse 18, we read that Jesus demands that people give him the priority or give him the first place in their lives above all else. Now, Paul knew this, but what we are going to see today in Mark chapter 10, Jesus actually teaches on that same principle, and he begins to answer the question, what must I do to inherit eternal life? So if you have your Bibles, and I hope you do, I would invite you to join me in Mark chapter 10. We're going to begin reading in verse 13, and if you have found your place in the Word, and you can, and you are able, I would invite you now to stand in honor of the reading of the Word of God. Now again, this is the Gospel of Mark, the good news of Jesus Christ. In Mark chapter 10, beginning in verse 13, he writes... And they were bringing children to him that he might touch them. And the disciples rebuked them. But when Jesus saw it, he was indignant and said to them, Let the children come to me. Do not hinder them, for to such belongs the kingdom of God. Truly I say to you, whoever does not receive the kingdom of God like a child shall not enter it. And he took them in his arms and blessed them, laying his hands on them. And as he was setting out on his journey, a man ran up and knelt before him and asked him, Good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus said to him, Why do you call me good? No one is good except God alone. You know the commandments. Do not murder. Do not commit adultery. Do not steal. Do not bear false witness. Do not defraud. Honor your father and mother. And he said to him, Teacher, All these I have kept from my youth. And Jesus, looking at him, loved him and said to him, You lack one thing. Go, sell all that you have and give to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven. And come, follow me. Disheartened by the saying, he went away sorrowful, for he had great possessions. And Jesus looked around and said to his disciples, how difficult it will be for those who have wealth to enter the kingdom of God. And the disciples were amazed at his words. But Jesus said to them again, children, how difficult it is to enter the kingdom of God. It is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. And they were exceedingly astonished and said to him, then who can be saved? Jesus looked at them and said, With man it is impossible, but not with God. For all things are possible with God. Peter began to say to him, See, we have left everything and followed you. Jesus said, Truly I say to you, there is no one who has left house or brothers or sisters or mother or father or children or lands for my sake and for the gospel who will not receive a hundredfold now in this time houses and brothers and sisters and mothers and children and lands with persecutions and in the age to come eternal life. But many who are first will be last and the last First, let's pray together. Father God, we come before you right now thanking you so much for this morning. And Father, we thank you for the opportunity again that we have to be in this place, to worship you. Father, we thank you for the opportunity we've had to worship you in song, 
to worship you through giving. And now, Father, we ask that in these next few moments together as we study your word together, Father, may you and you alone be glorified as we worship you through this study and this time. Lord, we thank you for the opportunity that we have to to be in this place today, to be able to come in and to lift our voices to you. And so, Father, we pray that now you would prepare our hearts, prepare our minds, and God, may you and you alone be glorified as we seek to better understand your truth today. Jesus, we love you. We thank you for loving us, and we thank you for delighting in us. And now we pray that it would be your name that is magnified above all else, for it is in your precious and holy name that we pray. Amen. Thank you. You can be seated. Now, just to set the scene for you again, this is John Mark who wrote this gospel that's called the Gospel of Mark sometime around A.D. 65 to A.D. 68. And what he ultimately does is he makes use of the eyewitness accounts of the apostle Peter. Now, his audience was clearly Roman believers who were experiencing heavy persecution under the reign of Nero. Now, Mark has already challenge the believers concerning discipleship according to the words of Jesus Christ in Mark chapter 8 and 9. Now he opens this section of Mark chapter 10 by reminding us all how we are to receive the kingdom of God. And then from there he answers the question of what it is that we must do in order to inherit the kingdom. So as we will see, it may not be a what, it is a who that we are to place our faith in when it comes to inheriting eternal life. So by the time we are done today with our text, we will see that inheriting the kingdom of God requires some very simple math, okay? Now, I don't want to offend the people in the room who are passionate about math, I don't want to offend the teachers in the room who teach math. Now, I'm going to go ahead and call out somebody in the room because I just noticed a whole row looked down to the end of another row at a particular math teacher who is in the room, okay? Not to offend anybody who is passionate and who loves math or is a teacher of math, or maybe you're just a student of math. Maybe you're a person who, for whatever reason, you go home and you find your joy. Once you are done reading the Bible, you find your joy in pulling out an old math book. Okay, if that is you, God bless you, okay? That is not me. That is not what I'm about. I am not very good about it. In fact, there was a season in my life where I found myself working at a credit union, dealing with math every day. And I'm going to go ahead and tell you, it was by God's grace that I even had that job. And then here's what ultimately happened. My manager saw that I was not that strong in math. And so he moved me over to the side of the company where I was dealing more with the people and making them feel better about their math as opposed to actually doing their math for them. So that's my feeling on math. So all that to say, today, we're just going to cover some simple math. And here's one of the things that I've learned about math. And again, I'm really making light of this, okay? We are going to look at just some laws or rules or directions that normally come with solving an equation. Now, I don't know if you remember what math class was like, but there was a way to come to the answer. Now, I remember being a student in school when it came to things like division, our teachers would tell us to write out the long answer, meaning show me how you got to the answer. And I'm going to go ahead and tell you I failed at that assignment more than I succeeded. Now, I got the answer correct. I just didn't show the teacher all the steps to get there. 
So that's how I treated math. So what I quickly realized from that particular teacher was this, is that there are directions to be followed. There are rules that come with math. And so with math, what I learned is that there are some observations that we need to make before solving an equation. Am I right? Yes, I got a nod from the math teacher. Okay, good. I feel better. So what I want us to look at today is I want us to look at some simple math observations from Jesus' teaching here in Mark chapter 10, verses 13 through 31. The first observation being this. We are to receive the kingdom of God with the faith of a child. Now we see this in verses 13 through 16. Here in this text, we see that Jesus had a special affection for children. Now it was an affection that he had for them, yet the disciples did not share that same affection. You see, Jesus loves the children for both who they are and for what it is that they can teach. In fact, we will be hard pressed to find another moment in any ancient literature that shows a similar concern or affection for children than what it is that Jesus shows when the children come to him. Now we look at verse 13. Verse 13 opens by saying, and they were bringing children to Jesus. Now, the they would, would have been the parents, they would have been the extended family members, perhaps even friends who were bringing children to Jesus. You see, they wanted the children to be touched by Jesus, if you will. They wanted the children to meet him. And so the disciples, upon seeing this, thought it was a huge waste of time for the Messiah, for the Savior, to be spending this time with children. And so the disciples began rebuking the people. Now again here, just as we saw in Mark chapter 8, we saw it in Mark chapter 9, again we see the disciples have much to learn as they try to limit access to Jesus Christ and their behavior now begins to reflect an attitude of elitism or exclusion, if you will. Now we need to pay close attention to this because if we are not careful as a church today, we can find ourselves in the same boat. You see, oftentimes in churches, we have created what we call silo ministries. And this is where we isolate different groups away from the church as a part of the church. And the reality is, in particular cases, in many instances, in the American Evangelical Church, we have created separate ministries for our children, separate ministries for our youth, and our purpose was not to simply give them their own space. Our purpose was to simply remove them because they were a distraction to us as adults. So in order to examine where we are when it comes to children in worship, we need to be able to answer the following question. Question. Do we love our children or are we like the disciples who basically said there is no time for babysitting? You see, the answer to that question for us here at Southside can be found in how we answer the following question Are we as adults willing to work in the nursery? 
Are we willing as adults to help with vacation Bible school? Or are we willing as adults to go and watch our children in their sports and in their other extracurricular activities? Now notice this. I said our children in reference to our children and our students here at Southside Baptist Church. Why? Because it takes an entire faith family. It takes an entire village to raise a child in their spiritual upbringing for Jesus Christ. You see, it's not simply the responsibility of parents to help raise children. It is our responsibility as well as brothers and sisters in Christ. It is a commitment that if you've been here before, before a baby dedication, it is a commitment that we as a church make back to the parents and to the child in order to see to their spiritual upbringing. So what I want to encourage us with is this. We as adults, we need to honor the commitment that we have made before the Lord. We need to honor the commitment and faithfully serve and support our children because that is what Christ called us to do and the example that he has set before us. Now we move on to verse 14 and we see Jesus saw the disciples arguing, if you will, with the people and he became indignant is what the text tells us. Now indignant to be defined here is actually Jesus' righteous anger was now aroused and on full display and he began to publicly rebuke the disciples. Now James Edwards in this moment says this, he says, the object of a person's indignation reveals a great deal about that person and what it is they believe. So in In our text, it is easy for us to assume that Jesus, through his frustration with the disciples, shows us his compassion for the children. Because you see, during Jesus' day, the children represented the helpless. It was the children who represented the most vulnerable and the powerless within the communities. So Jesus here is teaching that children are worth his time And therefore, since children are worth Jesus' time, they should be worth our time as well. Now, notice this as well in this text. The children come to Jesus full of hope. They come to Jesus full of trust. They are completely helpless, and yet they come to Jesus Christ in order to be received with open hands. Now, they don't know all that they need, yet they know they need some sort of help like our kids do today. They bring nothing but empty hands, which is appropriate because it then becomes the hands of Jesus Christ that will then fill their empty hands. We move into verse 15. Verse 15 teaches us the importance of verse 14. Jesus teaches here that like a child waiting to be picked up, the kingdom of God is not something that is earned, rather it is something that is received. Think about this in terms of picking up a child. Now, I think about it in terms of picking up my youngest child, Skylar. You see, Skylar has no problem walking up to me or to Allison, and before she even says a word, she looks up at us and she raises her hands. 
Now, I'm going to go ahead and tell you, I have learned that when a four-year-old raises both hands to the sky, that is not an act of surrender, okay? It's not an act of, Father, everything you have taught me is right, and now I will abide by your rules. No, what it means is she wants to be held. She wants to be picked up, and she wants to be close to us. You see, here's the reality when we pick up a child. None of us as adults have never looked down at a child with their arms raised and said, I will lift you, but first you must repent and follow me. None of us have ever looked down upon a child and said, I will hold you, but first you must go and wash my car, or first you must go and vacuum the house, or first you must go see your mother because I don't have time for this. No, when we see the arms raised to the sky as adults, as parents, we naturally scoop up our children, pick them up, and hold them. You see, when it comes to picking up a child, there is no expectation. There is no rule that we place upon them when we pick them up, before we pick them up. You see, it is simply done. Well, the same can be said with Jesus Christ for us and his kingdom. We get into verse 16. And here we see a beautiful picture of the amazing grace of the gospel. We see Jesus here picks up the children. These children brought him nothing, and yet he picks them up, and he begins to bless them. In other words, he gave them a meaningful touch. He gave them a spoken word, and he attached a high value and intrinsic worth to what, we, what would be considered the least of these during Jesus' day. You see, for us today, we too need to see that when it comes to our relationship with Jesus Christ, we bring nothing to him. All we have is Jesus. We have not earned it, and yet he chooses to bless us with it. In the same way, just like our children, just like Jesus with the little children, we need to lift up our kids. We need to pray for them, realizing that we have the greatest gift, which is our salvation in Christ, and it is our responsibility as adults to impart that upon them. So my prayer here at Southside Baptist Church is that we would point our children to the God who saves, the only one who can truly bless them. Our second observation that we see in the text is this. Receiving the kingdom is actually easy. We see this when we look at verses 17 through 22. Now, Jesus was continuing his journey to Jerusalem. Jesus is still with the disciples who we can now quickly assume are a band of struggling students who can't seem to grasp what it is that he has been teaching in, in Mark chapter 8, Mark chapter 9, and then here again in Mark chapter 10. Now, he has just finished talking with them about how they should have faith or a simple childlike reliance upon him. Now, all of a sudden, after seeing this teaching played out firsthand with the children, they continue on their journey, and then a young man approaches them who is the complete opposite of a helpless child. In verse 17, 
We see a man of great wealth or a man of many possessions now runs up to Jesus. Now, we call him the rich young man or the rich young ruler, if you will, because in Luke chapter 18, verse 18, he is actually called a ruler. In Matthew chapter 19, verse 22, he is called young. So what we can safely assume about this man from the text is we know that he is a powerful man. We know he is an, uh, a man of affluence and also a man of influence, which would be completely the opposite of the children that we just saw with Jesus. Now, the man runs up to Jesus because he knew that Jesus, according to the text, was setting out on a journey. This man realized that he may not get another opportunity to talk to Jesus, whose teachings were like nothing he had ever heard before. Now, notice what the text says. It says that the man knelt before him. Now think about that for a moment because here is a remarkable sign of respect. This man saw Jesus as a distinguished rabbi and paid him the honor reserved for great teachers of the law. This man came the right way. He came humbly before the Lord. He came to the right person, that right person being Jesus Christ. And now the man asks the right question. He starts by calling Jesus good. Here, along with kneeling, is another tribute indicating the impression that Jesus Christ has made upon the man. Now, this is important because Jews referred to God as good, and no one else was spoken of in this way except in some sort of qualifying sense. So this man was in awe of Jesus, and he had an extremely important question to ask. And his question was this, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Now we know, according to the scriptures, that eternal life is a life of God and a life with God. It is the privilege of being a member of the kingdom of God. Now we also know that it is received with faith in Jesus Christ and has the same reliance a little child does in Christ. But now notice this. Notice that by asking, what must I do, we are now seeing the problem with the man. You see, he believes eternal life is something that you work for or that you work towards. Well, here's the truth. All religions can be broken into two categories. I am saved by what I do or by what another has done. Now, by God's grace, Christianity is a done religion. Eternal life is not achieved. Rather, it is received as a gift, according to John chapter 1, verse 12, based upon what Jesus has done for us, according to John chapter 3, verse 16. So for this young ruler, we can already see that he needs both a change of theology and a change of heart in order to inherit eternal life. Verses 18 through 21. Jesus now answers the question with a theological question of his own. He asks the man, why do you call me good? Now Jesus here puts the focus back where it should be. That focus is God alone. 
Jesus acknowledges here that the man's starting point was actually wrong. Now, no doubt this man was probably a good man by Jewish standards, but he was focused on himself. And so Jesus forces him to look at God and therefore implicitly confronts the man with his evaluation of who Jesus is. You see, to call Jesus good is to call him God. And if he is God, then it would be appropriate to call him good. It would be appropriate to worship him. It would be appropriate to follow him and therefore obey him. And so Jesus challenges the man to think carefully and to choose clearly what his words should be. Now, Jesus does not wait for the response from the man to his question. Rather, he then goes on to cite the last six commandments, which addresses our relationships with one another. Now, the man then responds by saying that he has conducted his life according to the law of God. He has honored it. He has obeyed it. It's like what we read in Paul's words uh, in Philippians chapter 3, verse 6. The man was faultless with respect to the outward demands of the law as taught by the religious teachers of Israel. In other words, the man says to Jesus, Jesus, I have done all these things since I was a young boy. Now notice this. The text then tells us in verse 21 that Jesus looked upon the man, that Jesus loved him. Pay attention to that because we are now entering one of the most tender and yet tragic verses in the Bible. You see, the sincerity and the earnestness about the man moved the heart of our Lord. He reached out to the man because he knew this man, made in the image of God, was so close to the kingdom of God. However, all of this was about to change for the man because then Jesus addresses the first commandment in Exodus chapter 20, verse 3. He tells the man that God must be number one. He tells him that God must be the God of our lives. No one and nothing can stand between God and us. And so here we see that this man's wealth occupied a place that only God should have in his life. Although the man did well with this other six commandments, he was living in disobedience, sin, and idolatry when it came to commandment number one. You see, this sounds really simple. But the reality is, as believers in Christ, we are all called to put away anything that is an obstacle to following Jesus Christ. In the example of the man, we cannot love wealth supremely and then love Jesus supremely as well. Verse 22, we see the tragic end to their encounter. We read that the man was disheartened and he went away sorrowful. Why? Because he had many possessions. His gold, his wealth, all these things would remain his God. 
You see, the man got the right answer to the question. He just didn't give the right response. It's just as James Edwards says when he notices a person who leads an exemplary life, who even endears himself to the Son of God, can still be an idolater. You see, these words need to stay fresh on our minds as we move to our third observation, which is this. Receiving the kingdom of God is actually harder than we think. We see this in verses 23 through 27. Now, clearly, I am not trying to contradict myself like a good math problem would, okay? However, I do want us to pay attention to what happened with the man. You see, he came to the right person, Jesus. He asked the right question about eternal life. He received the right answer, which was to honor God above all. But he did not respond correctly and therefore walked away from the only true source of eternal life. You see, in verse 23 through 25, Jesus now turns his attention to the disciples and says to them, how difficult it will be for those who have wealth to enter the kingdom of God. Now pay attention here. Jesus is not condemning wealth and commending poverty. You see, wealth is an addictive quality that breeds self-confidence, which could ultimately lead to wealth becoming the priority of an individual's life. And when that happens, the things of God go by the wayside. But you see, we don't have to just apply this to wealth. This does happen when our wealth or when our activities, or when our sports teams, or when our life and our stuff are placed ahead of God and therefore placed ahead of worship. You see, we have to be careful to remain focused on what matters. It was just two days ago, I was actually on social media and I read a meme that spoke specifically to this area. And it said this, when it comes to judgment, it doesn't matter what your golf game looks like. It doesn't matter what job you had. It doesn't matter what your bank looked like or your 401k. It doesn't matter how many three-point shots you can hit in a row. And it doesn't matter that your child's batting average in softball is greater than 500. No, at the end of this life, all that will matter is your relationship with Jesus Christ. And that is what will count. You see, we need to have a healthy perspective on life and what matters. Now, the disciples, how difficult in this moment, could not believe what it was they were hearing. And so Jesus says to them, children, how difficult it is to enter the kingdom of God. Now, Jesus is not trying to be condescending by calling the disciples children. Rather, he calls them children as a term of tenderness. Then he compares entering the kingdom of God like a camel, one of the largest animals found in this part of the world, trying to squeeze through the small eye of a needle. Now, the disciples clearly did not see this coming. And they quickly realized that salvation is harder than they thought. And so you get to verse 26 and 27. And here we see the 12, in their astonishment, ask the question, who can be saved? 
Jesus answers that question, or excuse me, his answer to that question is actually one of the great theological affirmations within the Bible. Jesus tells them that salvation is something that cannot be accomplished by men. You see, man alone, left to himself, will never make it into the kingdom of God and therefore will miss out on eternal life. Salvation has always been and will always be the divine accomplishment through the perfect atonement and the sacrificial death of God's Son. In other words, salvation comes by grace alone, in faith alone, by Christ alone, according to the scriptures alone, for the glory of God alone. We need to know and we need to remember these words. In order for Christ to be the savior of our life, the idols of our life have to go. That leads to our fourth and final observation. Receiving the kingdom is better than we think. We see this in verse 28 through 31. Now, I imagine that the disciples probably have a lot of questions by now on what to ask Jesus. And so Peter expresses a confused and yet heartfelt plea. In verses 28 through 30, Peter says, See, We have left everything and followed you. Now, Jesus affirms what Peter says and tells them that they will not fail to receive a hundred times as much now in this time and in the age to come, which is eternal life. In other words, Jesus teaches that we may have to give up our home, we may have to give up families, we may have to give up wealth, we may have to give up lands. In other words, it costs to follow Jesus. However, Jesus also teaches in this moment, the blessings far outweigh the losses. The benefits and the blessings of God's kingdom are simply too great to imagine. Now, don't mishear this, okay? You did not hear your pastor just say, come to faith in Christ and you will be blessed, okay? The blessing is the inheritance in the eternal life to come. The blessing is found in the hope that is to come. Okay? Do not mishear that. In fact, Jesus didn't want the disciples to mishear that as well. Because notice what he says. In his list of blessings, he mentions the word persecutions. Now here in this part of the text, this is a sobering reminder that as believers in Jesus Christ, we will share in all that is his, including suffering. It's like we read in 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 17. Persecutions, according to Christ, are a momentary light affliction when seen against the promise of eternal life. You see, becoming a believer in Jesus doesn't mean all of a sudden everything's going to be great. There is never going to point, come a point in time where I'm going to say to you, come down and if you pay me $100, I'll give you this small token and it will go on to richly bless you. You see, there, according to Christ, is blessing in affliction. 
But even as believers in Christ, when we face persecutions, when we face afflictions, we have hope because we know that we rest in the hands of our creator. We rest in the hands of our sovereign God. We get to verse 31. And here we see the grand reversal of every earthly standard of position, rank, and importance. We see here that God does not evaluate things in the same way that we do as fallen humanity. Rather, what we see God do or what we see Christ do in this moment is he again turns the standard upside down in a way that brings glory to him. And so we as believers should be thankful for what he has done, always keeping our focus on him. You see, the reality is speaking, when we speak of the gospel, when we speak of the good news of Jesus Christ and how Jesus transformed everything we've ever known, everything we've ever thought, everything we've ever believed, Tim Keller notes it this way. He says, the heart of the gospel is all about giving up power. It's, it's the heart of the gospel is all about pouring out resources and ultimately serving. He goes on to say that the center of Christianity is always migrating away from power and wealth. Why? Because it keeps us from falling into the trap of self-righteousness. It keeps God the priority. You know, I imagine, I imagine a world without wealth. I imagine a world without fame, a world without success. I wonder if you stripped all of that away from our world. And Jesus came and asked us the question, am I enough? I've often imagined what our answer to that question would be. So you see, we need to ask ourselves the same question. If everything was stripped from us, our jobs, our homes, our livelihoods, our securities, everything that we've ever hoped, everything that we've ever known and imagined, and all we had was Christ alone, how would we answer the question, is Jesus truly enough? You see, when you think about it, it really is simple math. Jesus plus nothing equals everything. Let's pray together.